Come on. They're right there. Let's go. Move, 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 move. This episode of Choices Not Chances podcast is sponsored by Louisiana Gun Shop. Located on Highway 90 West in Broussard, Louisiana, just south of Lafayette. For more information, stay tuned at the end of this episode. This is Choices Not Chances podcast with Ryan and Matt. I'm your co-host, Matthew Charette. Sitting next to me is Ryan Rogers. Ryan. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Choices Not Chances. It's glad to have you with us. And just like every other episode, guys, if you see something in this episode that needs to be shared out, please do, do us the service. Don't be selfish. Share it out. Put it to the people that need to hear it. Today, our guest is named Justin Gray. He's an active duty major in the United States Marine Corps. We chewed some of the same dirt back in 2010 in Marja and consequently have many of the same folks in our lives to this day. In this episode, we spend a significant portion of time talking about mentorship, which is underused and undervalued practice in the armed forces, and I would argue population in general. We also spend some time addressing Marja from a rifle platoon commander's perspective. The energy, the electricity, the loss, the despair. In our conversation, Major Gray talks about the loss of Alejandro Yazi. He was close to Alejandre when it happened, and this was formative in not good ways that changed, uh, changed Marines significantly. We end the conversation talking about stoicism in recruiting and life in general. Constantly in this show, stoicism continues to come up, continues to be talked about, continues to be a forerunning thought in the warrior community, and that's something that we also spend some time on. I hope you guys enjoy this episode, and let's get to it. All right, Justin Gray, sir, thanks for coming on. It's been, uh, I've been looking forward to it for the last several weeks, uh, especially since we get reconnected to, to, to uh, make it happen. So thanks for coming on. I appreciate you coming on out here. Yeah, Ryan, thanks so much for having me. Great to, great to reconnect with you and uh, just talk, talk war fighting, talk shop for a little bit. Yeah, I'm excited about it. Um, I, I, I definitely have some pointed questions that I ask in the beginning, um, and the reason is, is, is almost purely selfish. I want to know, you know where you come from. Um, if you've seen in some of my episodes before, then you know where I'm going with this. But uh, to, to give people an idea of the foundational building blocks of Justin Gray, let's take it to the beginning um, and, and talk a little bit about family dynamic, you know, siblings, uh, parents in and out of the house, uh, religion in the household. And then we'll kind of lead that up to a catalyst to service. Sure thing. So uh, let's start at the beginning. Where are you coming from? Who are you coming from? All right. So, um, you know, born in Daytona Beach, Florida. Uh, my father at the time was an FBI agent, had, uh, had just started uh, as, as an FBI agent. You know, prior to that, he did a few years as a, uh, as a beat cop up in ocean city, Maryland. And prior to that, he, uh, played lacrosse in college and served as a, uh, 0331 machine gunner in 1969 and 1970, uh, wounded March 11th, 1970 in the Quang Nam province of Vietnam. Uh, his, uh, his platoon sergeant at the time during the evacuation of him and his a gunner, uh, 
was calling in the medevac and coordinating uh, airstrikes at the same time. And a uh, Chinese communist hand grenade landed at his feet. And so the mm. platoon sergeant uh, took off his helmet, jammed it into the mud and dove on top of it, took the brunt of the explosion. Uh, after the detonation, he got back up, continued the medevac and continued coordinating an airstrike and getting the uh, the platoon out of there. And his platoon sergeant went on uh, after that to retire as a sergeant major in the Marine Corps and uh, received the Congressional Medal of Honor for his actions evacuating my dad from Vietnam. So growing up, that's, you know, one of the stories that I had heard from him and did, did some research on at a at a later age. Um, but uh, that was one of the catalysts to me joining the Marine Corps. Um, some other stuff. I uh, I grew up wrestling, okay, and I played played lacrosse for a couple of years in high school. Dabbled in football, but uh, I think the my involvement and my interaction in competition and team sports specifically, I think, were other catalysts to to me joining the Marine Corps. Um, grew mm. up with an older brother who, you know, currently serves in the DEA. Uh, spent about eight years as a as a police officer. Grandfather was retired Navy, um, and so service just kind of runs in our family. And uh, so it was a it was a in in hindsight it was a no brainer for me to join the Marine Corps and pursue a commission. But at the time, it seemed like an absolutely asinine idea. Uh, like I said, played some played some lacrosse and wrestling in, in high school. Went to college at the University of Tennessee. Um, had a had a great time there. Majored in finance. Oh, wow. No and no NROTC or anything like that. No thoughts of enlisting or pursuing a commission. <laughs> I was having a good ass time, and uh, and it wasn't until about a year after I graduated from college. I was working at as a financial analyst at a place called Caterpillar Financial over on the west end of Nashville, uh, Tennessee. So right across the street from the campus of Vanderbilt. Okay. And I was I was having a good time there, living with some buddies of mine and just, you know, enjoying ourselves. And then uh I went on a trip to Las Vegas with some friends. It was like a four day weekend. And that was in uh I don't know, it was like February or so of uh two thousand and seven. And um, when we got done with the trip, you know, I was recovering in the airport in Las Vegas and walked by a bookstore. So I wandered in there to take a look at the, uh, the bookshelves and found a book called One Bullet Away, The Making of a Marine Officer by a guy named Nate Fick. It was written uh, back in like 2005 or so. So I grabbed that and I was like, oh, my dad was a Marine. Again, no thoughts of joining the Marine Corps at all. So in the time that it took me to wait for my flight, board my flight, take the flight uh, to, to Nashville by way of Atlanta, I read the entire book. And when I closed it, I was like, yeah, I think that might be something that I could do. So I spoke to my dad about it and you know, told him I wanted to enlist in the Marine Corps. And he's like, dude, you got a, you got a college degree, like at least pursuing a, a commission. Uh, but I would recommend that you do the Air Force. I said, why the hell do you want me to join the Air Force? And you know, he was like, well, I think that, you know, transitioning from the Air Force into, you know, the profession back into the private sector, you're probably going to have some more, uh, more opportunities there. 
I said, that's bullshit. You just want me to join the Air Force because you want to <laughs> relentlessly make fun of me for the rest of your life. And he was like, yeah, there's that too. And I said, nah, Pop, I'm, jo I'm joining the Marine Corps. So eventually got linked up with an officer selection officer up there in Nashville. And uh, the rest is history. So when, when I talk to a lot of people, they assume that I got some, you know, hoorah, gung-ho story of joining the Marine Corps. Like, nah, man, I was hung over in the airport <laughs> and uh, had zero aspirations ahead of time in joining the Marine Corps. And it just kind of kind of happened and i think that it was you know i had that, that that maybe that pride of belonging or challenge benefit tag but there was something here that i think might have been missing and it didn't manifest itself until that uh that awkward time in the airport in las vegas back in early 2007 that's awesome it's wild because <laughs> i ask everybody that i interview these these questions what was the catalyst what was your earliest memory and things like that sure. and um i'm not going to say everything's the same but there is a, you know, first of all, there's a large portion of people that, that were like 9-11 people like me. Like that was the catalyst that burned in me and made some kind yeah. of calling, something stirred in my gut. There's a lot of that. But then like out of the notable leaders I've been around with, interviewed, things like that, there's a lot of them that went and tried college or even did college and then just were like not satisfied and yeah. drawn back in, you know, so it's, um, it's always fun. It's, it's interesting to hear why people made decisions and, you know, obviously that's not all of them. Some people made decisions cause they had to, or, you know, some sure. people are running from something, some people are running to something. So, um, but it's always interesting. So, okay. So when you get in the Marine Corps, uh, just kind of walk me through that wave tops of, of coming in, uh, maybe of school, and then of definitely getting into your first unit. Yeah. So when I, when I made the decision to join, like I said, I think there was a bit of a void there. Um, I had, I had thought about it uh, off and on over, over years, but never joining. I had just thought about my dad's service, my grandfather's service, stuff like that. But as I, uh, as I went through the, uh, the contracting process and, you know, going into the officer pool in Nashville, you know, I was super curious about OCS and what it was going to be like. I visited Paris Island once in like 2000, you know, pre 9-11. So you could just kind of walk on base and, sure. and uh, take a look around. Um, so, so I was, my curiosity was peaked. And so thankfully I didn't join early enough to where YouTube wasn't around. And so I was able to YouTube some things about OCS and I just started eating it up and learning everything that I could about drill, about war fighting, about anything that I would need, just like the way you talk at OCS, you know, in the third person, all that stuff, anything that I could use to get a leg up or at the very least not skyline myself by looking or acting like an idiot. I spent that in some, I spent that entire summer PTing and looking at YouTube videos about OCS. So I wasn't, wasn't really one of the cool kids anymore, I guess. Um, but going through OCS, I was about as average as average can be. And I realized how average I was when at the end of OCS, we were doing what's called the platoon commander inspection, where the, uh, the platoon commander, you know, the platoons are about 40 strong or so the platoon commander is a captain. He's got, you know, three staff and COs that work for him. Those staff and COs, uh, two of them sergeant instructors, one of them a platoon sergeant, they conducted various inspections throughout the cycle. And uh, I always passed them, you know, never really 
got like great marks or anything like that. Didn't really give a shit about that. Like I said, just trying to avoid being the the slowest zebra, if you will. Trying to be a great um, guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. But uh, but during that platoon commander's inspection, this dude steps in front of me and I, you know, gave him the proper greeting. Good morning, sir, candidate Gray. Blah blah blah. And he was like, Gray. I don't even fucking know you, man. Who are you? Like, have you been here the whole time? And I was like, yep, mission accomplished, <laughs> you know? And a couple of weeks later, I graduated OCS, uh, went to, went to the basic school for six months, uh, had some, had some great experiences there. And then, uh, went to the entry officer course, which was a significant, you know, just kicked to the junk for about three months. Um, but I got the infantry MOS, which I was super stoked about. Checked into, as you know, 3-6 back in late 2008, just as they were getting back from their Fallujah deployment. And uh, I was slated to go to India Company. And I was going to, uh, I was taking over the platoon of a guy named Sean Leahy. And if, if you remember Sean, you remember that he was a larger than life individual. And so me at the time, about 5'9", 185, not larger than life. And I realized like, man, this is going to be an uphill battle because this guy clearly has the respect of his Marines. And here comes, you know, little old boot Lieutenant Gray coming in to stand in front of the formation. And all these guys who just got back from a combat deployment are looking at me like, you know, what are you going to teach me, sir? You know, what, what now? And so one of the most formative moments, I would say of my the early years of my career was the moment that I stood in front of the Marines for the first time. And they talked to you at TBS and at, o and, and at IOC all throughout about, you know, the first opportunity that you have to stand in front of your Marines. And at the time, I just thought that they were just kind of churching up some shit. Like I'm going to go stand in front of some dudes and I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to meet them. We're going to have a great time, but it was so much more formative than that, because that is when I started to realize like how precious and important and real life this opportunity to lead Marines was. And it was that moment that I stood in front of them. And I, I can't remember exactly what I said, but it was mostly, you know, excited to be here. I tried to keep it, tried to keep it quick because I didn't want to, you know, kind of step all over my words. But uh, I'll tell you, man, nervous is not you know, begin to describe how I felt in that moment. But that was, you know, like I said, one of the first formative moments for me uh, coming out of IOC and coming into the fleet. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. And that, that's not something, you know, us enlisted guys have had to do, you know, we generally come in at the bottom and you kind of work your way up. So it's not like you're ever coming fresh and getting onto, you know, maybe a little bit when you're PCS and then you're coming into a unit, but that it's nerve wracking. It's nerve wracking for sure. And then coming in and feeling the shoes of giants before you is, is, is impossible. It can, it, yeah. Well, it's impossible in your brain. <laughs> Everybody does it. You do it. You feel them. Uh, they've been filling them for a couple hundred years. We've been hold, <laughs> holding it down, you know, but right. when you come in on those guys and you're learning and, you know, uh, the importance of, uh, of putting aside personality in order to take in what you can take in from a mentor or even somebody that's not a mentor, but somebody that you're falling in on 
and doing a proper changeover with those people. Um, even, you know, I think the Marine Corps, you know, officer staff do it. They do a great job with that, but that's a learned thing. in you know, in my world, that was a learned thing. I didn't have too many people. Um, and maybe a lot of that's my own issue, my own fault, but I didn't have too many people trying to tell me until about the middle part of my career, what I should expect, how I should go about taking over for, you know, leading peers, for example, that's a hard thing to yeah. do. And if you don't have somebody mentoring you through that, it can be harder. So, uh, who was, who was your first mentor? Uh, let's say in three, six, was that going to be Leahy? Uh, it, you know, I guess looking back on it, I could, I could consider him one, um, because I was, when I took over his platoon, he went over to, uh, went over to weapons, took over the cat platoon. So he, he's, you know, across the hallway. And so there, not a week went by where you didn't find me in his office at some point during that week, asking him things uh, about the Marines or about, you know, TTPs or just simple stuff like ops terms and graphics, stuff like that. So you could say that, uh, that he was one of the, one of the early ones, um, the most impactful one for me. And, you know, I've always thought that mentorship has to be, it's hard to call it mentorship when there's a bottom line involved, when like, you know, That's it's hard great. to call your boss, your mentor, because your boss expects stuff out of you. And it's not like mentorship. It is mission accomplishment and, mm -hmm. you know, troop welfare. Um, but I, I will say, I think one of the most significant mentors for me was actually an enlisted Marine. And that was, uh, that was my second platoon sergeant. Uh, so he, uh, Jason Polanco checked in right, uh, right before we went to Mojave Viper. And, um, uh, I had just, you know, my old platoon sergeant had been relieved. And so I was still trying to figure out like, what is a solid staff NCO? And, you know, he, he was a, he was a former scout sniper, um, served with one, two in, uh, in Nazaria. So he was, he was real close to those, those Amtraks, mm. uh, when they were fighting in there. Um, so he had some real world experience and, uh, you know, just him coming in and being level-headed and looking at me and saying, Hey, you're in charge and we're going to have a great relationship because these Marines demand that we have a great relationship. So that's how I expect this to start off. And I was like, yeah, great. Let's, let's do that. Mm -hmm. Um, the other one I, I would say would be, um, our company first sergeant, first sergeant Moda, who actually, uh, you know, coincidentally, he's the, uh, the sergeant major now for the Eastern recruiting region. So I still see him, uh, quite often, but just his, his, uh, his willingness to take, you know, a bunch of brand new lieutenants under his wing and sort of teach them what a staff and CO is supposed to be like, teach us about fit reps, stuff like that. Just stuff we didn't learn really in the basic school because there were no fit reps to be written and there were really no staff and COs around. So it was other officers just explaining to us their experiences, but you know, everybody's a product of their own experience and everybody's a product of their own personality. And so there is nothing that anyone tells you that is going to happen exactly the way that they explain it to you when it happens to you. And so there's a lot of on the job training. There's a lot of, you know, personal experience that has to be had. And those mentors for me came from those, those personal experiences. And then a very short while after that, Gordon Emanuel and, uh, that mentorship has not stopped up to this day. Um, there have been very, very few days in the past 15 years that have gone by 
where we have not either talked on the phone or traded multiple text messages. That's awesome. That's awesome. I, I understand that one wholeheartedly. Um, yeah. What's funny is he would call you a mentor, I think, and then you call him a mentor. So that's an interesting uh, dynamic. I don't know and, if that works, but it works for us. Yeah. No, I think it's. I think it's great. I think it's. I don't. I don't ever think it should be a one way street. Um, mentoring means something, especially when you you really start to um, hammer down like your definitions and like your terms, like what you sure. mean by that. But uh, in my in my opinion. I don't care who I'm talking to. If I can learn something from them, even if they're a mentee, if I can learn something from that engagement, then they're mentoring me just as well, or at least I'm learning something from them. You can call yeah, it what no you want to call it. But yeah, it should never just be a one-way check. It should be checked both ways. And um, Absolutely. It's, Gordon Emanuel is just one of those people. Um, it's, it, plain and simple. There's not too much yeah. you know, more we have to say about it, I think. He's a... He's a brilliant mind and somebody that, you know, that I've picked as well. And, and then, you know, he kind of, my, my official introduction to you is kind of through him. And we did some things with, um, uh, with Instagram and doing some lives, talking about leadership, talking yeah. about mentorship. And it's like, every time I've talked to you, I've learned a lot. So I was like, I got to have, uh, Mr. Gray on my show because I have a lot of questions and I want to, I want to spend some time. So, um, yeah, so that's cool. I appreciate that. Uh, I also know is for Sergeant Moda, uh, and and he was a great when I you know I knew him three six obviously, and then I think he took over one of the companies over at ITB uh, for a little bit yeah. afterwards, and um, always good things from him. So, oh yeah, very no, cool. he was great, hard nosed guy, and you know taught us, and then you know we went to battle together, and that that sort of that helps. There's nothing that solidifies a relationship more than you know going to war with somebody. Battle that, does that. You know, that. That helps. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Fact. Fact. Cool. Okay. So um, when you, I want to spend a little bit more time on the mentorship and, and hammer yeah. it down because, because I think I'm a little bit ignorant now speaking strictly about mentorship. Do you, th would you say a mentor knows that he is mentoring if it's a proper mentor and mentee relationship, do they know it? They should. They, know they it. should. Yeah, uh, they should. And and to me, I I don't know that it requires like a a no kidding discussion to occur where we lay out like I'm the mentor, you're the mentee. But the the litmus test, I think that Gordon and I have kind of come up with is do you have a mentor yes yes i do all right would you bet a paycheck that if i cold called your mentor right now and asked them who their mentees were that they would list you as a mentee mm. and a lot of times when we ask that question people are like man i don't know if i would bet a paycheck mm -hmm. it's like well is that is that person your mentor a lot of people just know you know what i talk to this person every day he's my mentor and I would bet a paycheck that he would say that he mentors me, or I would bet a paycheck that he would say, no, that guy's my mentor, you mm, know, kind of mm -hmm. like that. But, but I think that, um, th the knowledge is, is the understanding is, is largely implicit, but that's not to say that you should shy away from going out and finding a mentor and being deliberate about it. Like, mm -hmm. Hey, sir, or ma'am, 
I, I respect what you do. I appreciate everything that you do. We've had a number of discussions in the past. I, I wanted to ask you, like, would you, do you have the time? Would you mind being my mentor? And that, that person should pause and deliberately think about it because there's a lot that goes into that relationship. You know, there is a lot of personal and professional growth on both sides that occurs, but that growth doesn't occur without a commitment of time, energy, love, compassion, trust, you know, insert any word you want to there. It does not happen unless there is a commitment of all of those things on both sides. So you can't kind of go and ask somebody and be half-assed about it. And on the other side, you know, if you're going out and you're trying to find somebody to mentor, man, you better be committed to that individual. You better be committed to their growth. You better answer the damn phone when they call you at two o'clock in the morning to ask you a question about, you know, writing a fitness report or, you know, NJP in a Marine or whatever, uh, yeah, driving a stick shift, you know, <laughs> whatever it is, like throw it in there. You better be ready to talk about it. Uh, and you better be ready to have a frank discussion about it. Check. I agree. Now, do you think that, okay, so I think you probably answered this question already. The next question was going to be, do you think that mandatorily assigning mentors and mentees will ever work? And it sounds like no, but I'll let you breathe uh, on it. Yeah. So I was, I, I, uh, I talked to a guy on Instagram, uh, a gunnery sergeant up in Quantico. I talked to him a while back and he said something that stuck with me because we talked about that very thing. We talked about units assigning mentors to, you know, a young private or PFC coming from ITB, like, you know, Corporal so-and-so is going to be your mentor. And I was like, I've never met Corporal so-and-so and Corporal so-and-so has never met me. How's this expected to work? And what the gunnery sergeant told me, and it stuck with me was mentorship has to grow organically. Like you ain't, you ain't forcing this thing. I think very rarely will it succeed if you force it. And so that's one thing I was going to, I was going to mention it earlier, Ryan, I'm glad you asked. Um, I don't know that the Marine Corps does a very good job right now of truly embracing and encouraging mentorship. Mm. You know, we talk all the time about mission accomplishment and about troop welfare, but those two things are oriented towards an organization with a hierarchy that is that exists to win battles that exists to win battles and send marines off better than they were when they got them those are the those are the two things that any unit in the marine corps is charged with doing and when it comes to accomplishing a mission or a bottom line or sales quota or whatever you want to call it there's not a lot of room for mentorship a corporal in the marine corps who's a fire team leader has four Marines that they are entrusted to care for and to professionally and personally develop to carry out a bottom line. Which one of them is that individual going to mentors? Are, are, are they going to mentor all four or are they going to mentor somebody else in another fire team? Are they going mm. to mentor somebody else in another battalion? It becomes difficult. And when you rack and stack the priorities that exist in a warfighting organization, it doesn't leave a lot of room for mentorship. And so I, I, what we did years ago was create these, these, this Marine Corps mentorship program. And 
like I said, like the gunny said, it's got to grow organically. And when you create something like that, it's not, it's not growing organically. That's not to say that it, it can't exist because I do, I, I think that it does exist. I think that it exists at all levels in the Marine Corps, but it is certainly, I would offer most of the time it's, it's an afterthought, especially when you look at those two big things, mission accomplishment, troop welfare, like we're here to do a job, man. We're not, unfortunately, we're not here to mentor people. Maybe that happens. Maybe it doesn't, but I can tell you what's going to happen is we are going to accomplish the mission. Yeah. And we're going to do everything that we can to take care of Marines. Where does mentorship fall in there? Some organizations do it better than others. Uh, but I would say, um, I, I don't think that there needs to be some kind of carte blanche policy that the commandant or that one of the deputy commandants needs to come out with or some commanding general somewhere. I think that it's something that needs to grow at the grassroots level, at the individual level. I think that senior officers and senior enlisted and, you know, uh, field grades, company grades, stuff like that, <clears throat> they should encourage it, but they shouldn't heavy hand it. Yeah. They should just identify that this is important. We need to make this a priority. Here's some, here's some thoughts. Now you guys go figure it out. NCOs, staff NCOs, company grades, you guys go figure it out, figure out what this thing looks like and then go accomplish the mission and take care of your Marines in the process. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. It does make it difficult in the, in the setting that they're given, especially the younger you are. I think as you grow, especially if it grows organically, you find out who you want to be like, who you want to emulate, who you want to yeah. uh, follow. Um, but those, that first term even, it makes it very difficult to want to, you know, to, 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 try, to try to do anything. I would say I definitely agree that forced doesn't make sense. I definitely agree that it's a good thing. And, and I think that if you're a young corporal or a young sergeant and you have a, you know, junior Marine approaching you um, and then professing that they want to emulate you and, and requesting that you take them on as a mentee. And that's why I was asking, do you go out and make a statement? Because sometimes somebody might be looking for that, you know? And if you're out there looking for that, if you don't tell the people that you want to be mentored by them and you never even bring that opportunity into life, uh, then it's always going to just be you guessing or hoping that they pick up on that. But, like, if yeah. I went to somebody and I say, hey, you know, this is me coming to you because I like what you're doing. And, and to me, you're the answer. Can you please take me under your wing and, and, and show yeah. me how to be like you? That should be an honor badge that you wear as an NCO. If somebody comes up and says that to you. Um, and maybe, maybe that's just not being said, but if you're a junior guy and you're trying to be like your senior guys, maybe that's the time for you to, you know, here's your sign, go let them know and, and start that relationship. What would you say? Yeah, go ahead. Ask, let me ask you this, Ryan. Sorry to interrupt. Um, you are you're saying that I think after after many discussions, after many years of experience as a United States Marine and as a professional in general, would it, it, I think the problem would be fixed if junior Marines did that? Would Lance Corporal Rogers have have done that? Would hell would Second Lieutenant Gray have had the foresight, the wherewithal to? to do that, to approach a more senior Marine and, and ask them what, you know, amounts to be a pretty, 
personal and intimate question. Um, I, I want to establish a relationship with you. It's kind of, kind of sounds like dating, you know, it's like, I want to, I, I want to ask you to be my mentor. And that's a, that's a tough one. I think for a, maybe an 18 or 19 year old kid uh, to, to get their mind around so early when they are, you know, they, 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 they're so early on in a career that is completely different from anything they've ever done before in their lives. And I, I guess my point is like, it's, it has to be normalized up and down mm-hmm. starting at the grassroots level before somebody can have the, the foresight, uh, the G2 to, to ask something like that. Again, that's I, I completely happen, agree with you. And I think that that's mainly the reason why I want to have the conversation. Because yeah. if I would have watched a podcast where somebody was saying, hey, it would help your career immensely if you did these three or four things, I would probably take the advice. I was open to advice coming up as much as I could, right? As much as sure. I could in my yep. in my setting. But I have always gravitated towards the people or personally, I have always wanted to gravitate towards the people who were better than me, smarter than me, faster than me, stronger than me, and find out how they're doing that and get more of yeah. it. And so yep. if you're one of those people and you don't know who your mentor is and you don't have a mentor, I would suggest going out on that limb, making those requests, but do your, you know, due diligence in who you want to emulate too. Don't just, this yeah. isn't just, you don't just fly by the seat of your pants in this. And it may take a couple of, you know, it may take a while to understand who you want to emulate. And that's another problem that it runs into uh, as far as, in my opinion, as far as like junior Marines are concerned, it's like, how do they even know who they want to emulate? They've seen two team leaders, you know, Yeah. or They've one squad two team leader. leaders. And eight months ago, they were, they were hanging out at home, you know, with long hair, smoking weed. <laughs> so they don't, they don't, they don't know. And I think yeah. that, uh, you know, if you ask Gordon, I bet he'll, I, I, I bet he would agree with this. I think that it, it's not so much a, it's not like a chicken or the egg type thing. It is the main effort in this, the catalyst to, to this becoming normal has to rest with the NCOs. And a, and I know it exists in their, in, in their PME, um, at, at corporal's course and sergeant's course, but we have got to make a much more concerted and informal effort, a personal effort at driving this thing to the NCOs to go out and find, Hey, I'm Sergeant Rogers. I want to find Lance Corporal Rogers and take him under my wing. And, and when I see, when I see me in somebody junior to me, I'm probably going to be drawn to them and want to reach out to them and mentor them and, and turn them into me or turn them into even better, better than better than me. That's right. You know, that should always be the goal, right? During that process, the growth is occurring for that NCO too, or that company or field grade officer. Like you said before, the mentor is learning, just as much about themselves and about others that they're as, as their mentee. So it's, it's a absolutely a two way street and it's, it's awesome. Absolutely. Right on, right on. All right. Well, let's move on a little bit. We, uh, we talked a little bit about three, six, about the check-in. Um, we kind of skipped around a little bit, but why don't you cover the highlights of, of your first couple of deployments? I obviously, I know nothing about deployment two. I know a small piece about deployment one, just my small piece, but, um, you had a couple of like for a couple of one deployment one and deployment two, you had some spicy, spicy places. 
Yeah. Um, I had my computer logged out on me. I'm going to, uh, as a platoon commander, um, you know, you, I'm not saying anything you don't know, but we were originally supposed to go to Iraq in, I think, uh, August, September or so of 2009. That got, that got off ramp. They talked about the 31st Mew. They talked about a UDP. Uh, we were, we went to Mojave Viper. We did some training after that. And then in November, late November, uh, around Thanksgiving break, we found out that in early 2010, obviously President Obama was, you know, he, he approved the surge. And so uh, quite a few battalions, ours included, got off ramp from anything they were planning on doing, which included nothing, and said, hey, you're, you're going to Afghanistan. You know, you're going to arrive in Leatherneck at this time, and you, you know, you're going to go by way of Manus and all that stuff, and it's going to be freezing fucking cold. Um, <clears throat> but that was a, that was a shock. That was a shock, I think, to all of us. And it was exciting just preparing for that deployment in the small amount of time that we had to finalize. We've, we've been preparing for it. We just didn't know which one it was going to be for the entire workup. But knowing where we were going and then keying in on everything that was going on there, you know, going into the vault and looking at all the secret stuff, was it was electrifying as a leader, as an infantry officer, as infantry Marines. And I, you know, I'd be all giddy. I'd be going back to brief some of the stuff to my Marines. And then we'd go out and we'd do like, uh, uh, metal detector CMD lanes and stuff like that. We'd learn about IEDs and all, you know, all the stuff that you were doing with your squad. Um, it was, it was fun. And the, the moment we got into Afghanistan and I give, I give, Gordon and Adam Franco, I give them crap about this all the time because in the first, uh, the first few days of us operating, India was out conducting uh, patrol base operations just north of the city of Marja. And it was early February, 2010. Uh, the Saints won the Super Bowl that year. Kilo saw it, India didn't because we were already <laughs> shaping. Uh, but it was it was eight days of hopping from patrol base to patrol base. Mm. And all we were doing was just getting the Taliban to establish positions and then engage us from those positions so that we could identify where they were and and, you know, call for fire, conduct close air support strikes and enable the company to move closer and closer as the days uh, as the, as, as D-Day drew near and then, you know, February 13th, it was, it was game on. We woke up that morning and we knew what was going on. And, uh, again, it was, it was electrifying and we started walking South and we had a few trucks with us, but we were foot mobile, uh, for the, mo for the most part, my buddy, good, good buddy of mine, Jackson Smith. He was the platoon commander for third platoon. Um, he, his platoon had point. They were tasked with establishing uh, a support by fire position, kind of oriented north to south. And my platoon was tasked with doing sort of an action left around their left flank. And we were going to uh, seize a foothold to cross that big ass canal on the north side of, uh, of Marja. 
and right down by what was called Mev Objective Alpha, mm. and that was the uh, the big land bridge on the northern corner of uh, of Marja, uh, big bazaar on that land bridge, and Intel reports said it was riddled with IEDs. So we're moving south, and we hear over the radio troops in contact. Third platoon's in a tick that we had learned all about troops in contact. You know, the lawyers came and talked to us like, hey, here are your rules of engagement. Here's a law of war, stuff like that. You have to declare a tick. You have to declare that you are in troops in contact in order to get, you know, some kind of support. Mm. So we tick became like this. Oh, my God. If you hear that on the radio, it's like this is it. So we hear the third platoon's in a tick and then we start hearing it. And uh, I can only describe it as this was the first time that I'd ever been in contact with somebody who was trying to kill me. And it sounded like I was pulling pits at the rifle range. Cause you know, I just got rounds just snapping overhead and I'm looking around like three, like I'm looking, I'm surrounded by Marines. I'm like, where the fuck are these rounds coming from? I am so disoriented. My radio operator is like running ahead. He's shooting at something. And uh, so I go and, you know, I, I follow Walters cause that guy had it figured out. Um, but I'll tell you that the excitement it was it was great at first and then the excitement started to kind of wear off and then the the monotony of a deployment started to uh, to take over and you know we had those bouts of excitement every now and then but the subsequent ones were not as as enjoyable as that first as those first few moments were you know we sort of got those those cherries popped mm. um but we that that day uh d-day was really neat because you know, growing up when we run, you run range 400 or you run a range at Lejeune or up in AP Hill or something like that, you're doing fire maneuver, right? You're doing a company or a platoon live fire and maneuver. And you're thinking to yourself, like when you're buddy rushing, you're doing all this stuff, you're like, I don't, are we, are we is this what combat's going to look like? Like, are we really going to, you know, I'm up, he sees me, I'm down. I'm not going to move until my buddy's suppressing and then I'm going to run and I'm going to suppress. And this just feels all really weird. And then when we started moving towards Mev Objective Alpha, we, we were doing, I, like, I looked forward and I see one of my forward squads, Dan Lee's squad. Um, they were, I was like, fuck, those guys are, they're buddy rushing. They're doing it. And like, <laughs> turn around, they're, com they're communicating with each other and, you know, they're shooting 203s, the other guy's suppressing. And I was like, man, this, this stuff really works. And uh, that was it, like I said, that was a fantastic experience. And then, uh, and then reality set in and the next few months were yeah. some of the, some of the worst, uh, that we've ever experienced or that, that we, I guess me as a human have, have, has ever experienced, um, lost a Marine a, a few days later, one of my, one of my combat engineer attachments, Alejandro Yazi, uh, oh, was yeah. killed on February 16th, 2010 off of route weasel as we were doing a north to south uh, clear of that route. And you remember trying to clear with MRAPs and mine rollers and CMDs and stuff. I mean, you're walking, you're walking, I don't know, a quarter mile of an hour at, uh, at, at that point. And we, we hit an open area and one of my squads was not pushed out far enough. And we took contact from the east and uh, we all started returning fire. And Yazi, he, he got hit and went down and it was it was just like that you know killed in action and that was something that I, I was one of the i was one of the closest marines to him and had to had to respond to it and kind of arrive there at the same time the corpsman did and 
you know, we all pulled behind cover and continued fighting and him, him getting hit. It was like, all I wanted to do was focus on him, on the individual that the kid who was, who was down. And, you know, I got reminded by a couple of squad leaders, like, Hey, sir, we're still, we're still in contact. Mm -hmm. You know, we can't do anything right now except fight them off, call for air support and then move to a firm position so we can reassess what's going on. Um, so within, within, 72 to 96 hours first time anyone shot at me in anger and uh first first marine that i've seen up close um lose his life and those were some of the most you know formative in a in a not so good way uh moments of my life and uh you know like i said the rest of the deployment was uh was a a, a good bit of the same um made it home and i think a lot of us were were changed significantly uh after we got home and a, a lot of us you know we had an experience over the course of seven eight months where we grew incredibly close with those individuals in our fire team and our squad at our patrol base you know across the platoon um and that was i think that that was consistent across whoever deployed at that time across who's ever deployed for you know the past 240 plus years uh, it, it, in the Marine Corps. And a lot of those people who did some very, very heroic and incredible and superhuman things on the battlefield came home and they, they didn't know what to do. They, they were hurting and they were going through some pretty severe mental trauma. And I think it was because they were pulled away from their friends they, they left their friends, they got out of the Marine Corps. And uh, that's when I realized that the, the real world doesn't really give a fuck about service or tribe. Uh, it's, it's indifferent mm -hmm. to the accomplishments and sacrifices of the individual. And so that's something that uh, I thought about a little bit um, between those two deployments. And then I deployed back to Marja as a company XO and it wasn't as harrowing. It was not, there were not nearly as many direct fire engagements, but that I moved over to Kilo company as, as the XO. And we had a, we had a couple of Marines get pretty severely wounded uh, in a couple of IED strikes. And uh, after we got done with that deployment, I had the opportunity to go up to uh, Bethesda and go up to Philadelphia and visit with, uh, with a few of them. And uh, that's when it started to hit me even more that, man, we, uh, we do our Marines, I think a lot, and this is this is crazy to say, but we do our Marines a, a lot of time a disservice by making it so incredibly personal and connected that when they leave that squad, it's almost like they're at more risk than they were beforehand. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I have a lot of the same views. I think I think um, I just I don't, I don't know. I talk about this stuff a lot. I think that leaving and is not good i think that when you have that bond and that relationship with those guys a lot of people especially in the onset of all of this the first couple of years they don't want to talk to anybody that they don't think can relate to them and i say yeah. they don't think because that's the biggest part uh, of that sentence that's flawed you think that other people can't relate to you, you think that that doctor can't help you 
because he's never been to Vietnam or he's never been to Iraq or he's never been to Afghanistan. So what you think you have to do is just only talk to those guys and we need to relieve that stigma because these doctors don't ever have to go to a war zone to be able to help you. They understand your mind. They understand the psychology better than you do. And so I, but do I, 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 that was me when I needed help. I called the guys I was with, you know, I'm going to call them because they're the only ones that in my mind can empathize with me. Yeah. Um, so, so leaving and fragmenting and that's what we do, right? You come back from deployment, boom, change of command, fragment, everybody's going their separate yeah. ways. And some of the guys, and I'm not saying SF and, uh, and, you know, and SOCOM guys don't struggle, but I'll tell you what, in my opinion, they struggle less. They stay in a team a lot longer. They're with their core element that they're deploying with a lot longer. Even if they yeah. get damaged, that core element lets them do the best they can to stay around so that they can retain them in a team instead of, you know, regular infantry. Oh, that guy's yeah. hurt or up or he's psychologically damaged and he's shunned. And I did it. I mean, I just had a great conversation in the newest episode that just released with Tom Thomas Williams, Dr. Tommy Williams. And we talked about um, the culture. Like, we come from a culture where it's all alpha all the time. And so the second, even if you're my best friend, if you go down, I don't even want to. It's like leprosy. I don't want that in my head that that's even possible to, to hurt me. Because you were on my level and now you're hurting. I don't, so I got to stay away from you, man. I got to go over here. And I think we've done that too long, especially with psychological damage, especially with that. And so the, the hardest, in, in my opinion, psychological damage is that moral injury or that culturally uh, that you're just so culturally different in your foundation in the West coming up that you can't really even make sense of some of the things that happen over there, be it the treatment of children or special needs children or or you know, life in general, as it's looked at in the East, it's not looked at the same. So when you are confronted with that at a young age, let's say 18 to 24, I think culturally it's hard to even level some stuff. And you were only there with a handful of guys. So that's what you feel like you need to do. So I didn't mean to get too off track with it, but no, those are great points. I definitely think that the fracture or the splintering out and losing your buddies or not losing them, but, you know, everybody go, you go to a new unit, you got that unit and that life and you're in this, you know, so that happens. I don't think it helps, but I think it happens. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. What, um, what was, as a platoon commander, uh, we'll start with platoon commander and then we'll move to XO as a platoon commander. What was the, um, the most difficult adversity that you faced? Or you don't have to, uh, you don't have to just come up with one. Give me, you know, give me a one. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think the, 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 the cliche is as a young officer, you're, you're trying to, you're trying to prove yourself. You, you feel the need to prove yourself to a bunch of, to a bunch of Marines, infantry, hard chargers who the majority of them have, you know, back in, in our time, they, they saw a deployment and now they're, you know, they're the senior, one of the senior Marines in the platoon or in the, uh, in the company, uh, feeling the need to prove yourself to them is, is going to be a feeling of adversity to any young officer because we recruit the right people 
to become officers. And those individuals are, are alpha males and females. Uh, the problem is we don't have the experience to match up to those individuals, those corporals, the sergeants, staff sergeants um, of the platoons that we're taking over. Uh, and, and so that's, that's nerve wracking. And what I would, I guess, remind my younger self is, do you know how long you went to school and were educated on war fighting and infantry tactics, techniques, and procedures, and how much, you know, call for fire and close air support and stuff like that was drilled into your head in a very uh, severe and austere environment. You're ready, dude. You're ready. When you leave that school, you are ready to lead Marines. So that's the, that's the kind of cliche adversity there. Mm. Uh, the other one is growing up. And when you're going through school, uh, be it TBS or IOC or you know, even OCS, one of the biggest things that they're all telling you is, Hey, listen to your NCOs, listen to your staff NCOs, listen to your platoon sergeant, or else you're going to fail. If you go in there as a know-it-all, you're going to fail. And so I was like, all right, Yep, got it. Listen to the platoon sergeant, listen to the squad leaders. Um, but the squad leaders and the platoon sergeant that I had at the beginning of my workup were not the squad leaders and platoon sergeant that I deployed with, save for Dan Leith, who came to India a little bit after I did. Sure, shit listened to him. Um, but my first platoon sergeant was fired. He was relieved. Hmm. And I... I didn't know. I, I just, I grew up thinking, Hey, I gotta listen to my platoon sergeant. My platoon sergeant is a seasoned experienced staff and CEO. He knows what he's doing. He was, he was fired and not by me because I didn't know he needed to be fired. You know, first Armoda and, and, and the, the, the company commander, they, they pulled him into the office and they relieved him uh, because of an incident that occurred. And, you know, there was a number of other things that came out. And the moment that that happened, I, I I'm, I was on leave. You know, down in uh, South Topsdale with my my parents came into town, you know, uh, with my wife and um, girlfriend at the time. But uh, I got a call from my platoon sergeant. Like, hey, I, I just got fired. And I was like, who the fuck fired? What, what do you mean? Who fired you? Um, so I called the company commander and I'm like, sir, like, what, what's going on? He's like, oh, yeah, we fired him. And I was like, what? Well, like, do I not get a say in that? And he was like, nope, not in this instance, man. Not in this instance. So in hindsight, I, was, I realized that. I think the, the company commander, the first sergeant, they were, they were protecting me, I think. Um, I didn't really get too much out of it after that uh, as far as like details go, but that was a shock to my system yeah. as a, a young lieutenant because this, this is a dude that I was, I was planning on going to war with, and now, yeah, he's gone, and it turns out in hindsight, like that was absolutely the right call because hmm. uh, then my second, you know, next platoon sergeant came in, and that's the guy who taught me what a staff sergeant is. Is that Polanco? Like, what? Yeah, yeah, Polanco. Uh, that is what engaged and compassionate and aggressive leadership should look like. Not taking a lance corporal into the woods and wearing him out for two hours because he fired his weapon too close to your ear during a live fire range, something like that. But uh, that was a that was a huge jolt, and that was something that I had to uh, that I had to get over early mm. so that we could have a successful workup. But you know, listening sure. to your platoon sergeant, you know, and and at face value is not always uh, not always going to work out for you. And you may learn a tough lesson if you kind of blindly walk into uh, that piece of advice. Yeah. Sure. Um, what, before we move into your XO time, what, what's the, um, 
two things. So we'll start off. What was the most gratifying experience you had while leading Marines as a platoon commander? Just, uh, this is an easy one. Just seeing what they did, seeing them grow, seeing them live around each other. You know, you're talking 30, 40 dudes from, and this, this we get right in the Marine Corps, 30 or 40 people from all walks of life, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, from the South, uh, from the Pacific Northwest, from NorCal, you know, New York City, all coming together. And you put those dudes in, in, a, in a case band together for a month, and they're going to come out, they're going to come out a tribe, and they're going to come out ready to kill and bleed and die for each other. Um, it was incredibly special to see those men grow the way that they did and, and just, and, and know that I was their platoon commander. I don't think I contributed shit to their growth. I'll, I'll be humble enough to, to say that they contributed a lot more to my growth than I did theirs, but I was just, I was humbled to be a part of that tribe. And, um, that is to me, Ryan, that's, I mean, and that encompasses, you know, the entire workup and deployment. That was the most gratifying part of being a platoon commander was just being surrounded by giants who were otherwise normal young men who did some pretty heroic and incredible things when it mattered the most. Yeah. Yeah. I knew that was going to be your answer. That's, <laughs> that's my answer too. It always yeah, is to, to, to take any part in forming and training somebody to do a job and then watching them execute that job at the highest level with the highest stakes. There will never, you know, next to children and a wife, that. you know, there's never yeah. something that tops that. So, yeah. um, okay. And be, uh, one more question before we move on. Uh, if, if anybody in my audience is a platoon commander or coming up on platoon commander time right now, what's the number one piece of advice you would give them? Don't wear a mask. Um, that is a, it's a piece of advice I had an old boss give to me. A lot of, a lot of people come into leadership positions and this is not, you know, the Marine Corps doesn't have the monopoly on this issue, but I think a lot of people just that, that encounter leadership positions feel like they have to act a certain way or be a certain type of person in order to be successful. But if you are anybody but yourself, I was a goofball as, as a platoon commander. They'll all tell you that. If you try to be anyone but yourself in a leadership position, I think the odds of you failing grow significantly. And what I mean by that is when I say, I, I would say, leave the mask on the shelf. Like, don't, don't try to mask who you are. Don't mask your emotions. You know, humans are, humans are emotional creatures. We have emotions. That's all right. If you, if you wear a mask and you don't truly let your Marines know who you are, what your capabilities and limitations are, then your Marines, number one, won't be able, and number two, won't be willing to cover those limitations with their capabilities or, mm. you know, enhance your capabilities with their capabilities. Whereas conversely, if you let them in, you show them who you are, you show them that you're the real you, you're the real deal. You're a human being just like them. Um, and, you know, a sense of humor helps, then they're going to be, they will, they will charge up that hill for you. They will, they will clear that room 
for you because they know who you are and they're going to grow to respect you if you walk next to them, if you walk in their shoes, if you dig a fighting position next to them, if you toss them an MRE before you eat yours, simple shit like that, uh, while not wearing a mask, I think is going to help gain a young lieutenant with no experience, a whole lot of wasta and a whole lot of respect from their subordinates. Yeah, that's a great answer. I agree. And I would even add that when you do wear a mask, and, and those of you out there wearing masks know who you are. We all see it anyway. Marines are not stupid. Your enlisted Marines, as stupid as you may think they are, they can be stupid. But if you're being fake and you're not being authentic, they'll know it. And when yeah. when you're doing that, then then I don't trust you because it's like, well, who, who are you really? What are you really yeah. capable of? So that's a and great. They'll know it pretty quickly, too. And that's a hard hole to cl- uh, crawl out of, I think. Hundred percent, hundred percent. All right, now to the XO time. You greatest, uh, let's say, greatest failure as an XO where growth was found. Um. So when we got back from the first deployment, I I didn't know where I was going to go. I knew I was going to. I I. I offered to extend for the second deployment because our first deployment was a really long workup. Uh, second deployment, the deployment came pretty quickly. Uh, I, I didn't know where I was going shortly after the first one. And then I found out, um, hey, you're going to go, you're going to be a company commander. And I was like, oh, company commander, man, this is, wow, I'm a first lieutenant. You know, <laughs> this is pretty cool. I said, which, which line company am I going to? You know, am I taking over India? And they're like, no, you're going to H&S. And I was like, oh, oh, man. Um, what is that? And uh, so I went and I, I did the majority of that second workup as the HNS company commander, just kind of fumble fucking around, <laughs> trying to figure out like what all of the staff sections did. Yeah. And then what I was supposed to be doing to enable them to enable the battalion to enable each of the individual companies. Um, shortly before Mojave Viper uh, started, all the captains came in from expeditionary warfighting school. So they were all given their, uh, their companies. And I was like, Oh, well, what line company am I going to, to be the XO? They're like, no, you're going to be the H and S XO. And I was like, man, I don't, I don't think there was an H and S XO on the first deployment. Like, what am I supposed to do? And they're talking to me about like being a camp commandant, all this stuff. And I'm like, you know, I, there's gotta be some mistake. Like I'm, I'm an infantry officer. Like I'm not, I, I don't, I'm not supposed to be doing all this. Um, so we deployed and I deployed as the HNS executive officer and I'm, I'm in charge of this big ass armory, uh, that's on, uh, we were, we took over Fob Marja at the time. So the, down in central Marja, so a little further South from where we chewed dirt on the first deployment. Mm-hmm. Um, I lasted about a month as the HNS executive officer. And then, uh, word came down that the XO for Kilo company was getting relieved and, Somebody was like, "Hey, send uh, send Gray down there." And I was like, "Yeah, send send Gray down there. Like, let's do this." All in. And yeah, so I uh, so I got my chance about a month into the deployment to go be a line company XO. And the whole time that I was doing this H and S XO thing, it was not at all what a line company XO was supposed to be doing. So I get down to Kapazadi down in 
down in Southern Marja and, you know, I meet the, meet up with the company commander, I meet up with the first sergeant company guns. And I realized like, man, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. I have no idea how to help a company commander run a line company. And so, you know, I'm, again, just kind of fumble fucking around. I go up and, and try to set up the COC and figure out how that thing works. And I'm, I'm learning on the job. And uh, I, I do, every night I worked with the company gunny and the, uh, the watch officer. And we would, uh, uh, we would get, an EDL of all of the serialized gear that we had at the cop and then all of the surrounding locations. And every night it was just kind of the same thing, reporting numbers, doing a site count, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then we got so used to doing that, that, uh, we, I was sitting in the COC one day and we get word that a pair of our NBGs is missing. And it was missing from a Marine in the COC. And uh, what we learned was they'd been missing for a few days. Uh -oh. So company commander, like, hey, man, like, I thought you guys were doing EDL checks and site counts. And I was like, well, sir, I, uh, we, we were, but clearly we weren't doing a good enough job. Um, so lost gear in 3.6 didn't start with, you know, the rifles that were lost recently. It started in 2011 when Kilo Company lost a couple pairs of NPGs. Uh, and so we spent days looking for those things. And it turned out that one of the Afghan National Army soldiers had swiped a couple of pairs from the, uh, from the COC, from a couple of the, the, the watches there. And he went out and he, he sold them out in town. And somehow by through this intense like collections and IO campaign, we got the, they were delivered by a couple of civilians back to us um, but I think that the, the failure there was a lack of accountability and, you know, that buck always stops with the company commander, but the company commander delegates that accountability authority down to the two IC, the XO, the second command. And I failed miserably at maintaining simple accountability of gear. And that's something that that happened, I don't know, two months into my time there. So close to halfway through the deployment. Um, but that, that changed me significantly throughout the rest of the deployment. Um, I, I don't know if, I don't know if it was an issue of me not taking it seriously. Uh, cause I was just so excited to be back in a line company and, um, or if it was just a, an issue of, of, I, I don't know, gross negligence or a mistake on my part. But the bottom line is that I learned a very hard lesson from that experience and, uh, I realized that you have to, you can be a compassionate leader, you can be an empathetic leader, but you have got to establish a culture of accountability mm. in your organization. That accountability is performance related. That accountability is leadership related. That accountability is gear related. Everything we do and the stuff we do it with and the people we do it with are all important. And we've got to have mechanisms of accountability throughout all of those things, people, stuff, and actions. And uh, I, I learned, oh, I'm grateful that it was not a, you know, a, a, a life or career altering experience, um, but it was certainly a, a mindset altering experience, if that makes sense.
Oh, 100%. It happened to me in my first trip to Mojave Viper as a squad leader, uh, Lima Company 3-2. And I reported my EDL up after doing my counts because I looked at my team leaders. And I'm like, hey, we up, we up, we up, roger. Well, my platoon sergeant uh, was holding one of my guys' PEC-16, knowing that I wasn't up. And then I learned a lesson. Yeah, and, and I can relate. I get that. And um, the systems that other people used before us are in place for a reason, for sure. And, uh, yeah. yeah, it's, it's best, to, best to pick that stuff up. Um, I, let's make a transition because I know you're down at or have been down at as a commanding officer at RS at, in, in Atlanta, right? Atlanta, yeah. Yeah, and um, every single person, Marine, that I've ever talked to about recruiting has recruiting stories, either usually it's stories of struggle and strife. <laughs> um, but I know you got some good stories too. So what was that experience like for you? Uh, especially being a platoon commander, you know, in combat and XO in combat doing it, you know, some follow on stuff, but as you come out of that and then going into a new world of recruiting and selling the Marine Corps, um, what's that like? Um, so the, I got some, I got, I got some stories, but disclaimer is I'm still on this duty in this billet. And so I'm still within the statute of limitations. Uh, so some of them I'll have to save for, sure sure nothing nothing over a glass of bourbon or something yeah nothing bad but uh growth stories news stories anything the uh the transition from you know being an infantry platoon commander a company xo a company commander after that a battalion operations officer just surrounded by the infantry for the majority of my career no I, i i went to school for a year and learned how to be an infantry officer. And then I had multiple, multiple opportunities to gain experience as an infantry officer, as a leader of infantry Marines. And when I went out to recruiting duty, nothing, very little had prepared me to truly encounter and deal with what we were going to be dealing with uh, out here on recruiting duty. And that sounds super dramatic, uh, but I have learned through experience and I spent three years on Paris Island. So I, I've, I've been a series commander. I've been a company commander. Uh, I've been in charge of drill instructors. So I know exactly what they go through on a daily basis. And I can tell you it is, it is 100% heroic and it is fucking legendary. Grueling, uh, grueling, short, I'm sure. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, lights to lights, you're, you're sweating through your core frames, your, your, your core frames are melting onto the parade deck, et cetera. Uh, one of the most physically demanding things that I've ever seen a a man or woman do. Um, but I, I can confidently say that short of active direct contact with a determined enemy, recruiting young men and women to join the Marine Corps is the most difficult and stressful thing a Marine can do. And I will leave this duty knowing that, and I will probably take that to my retirement and my grave. You won't be able to change my mind. We, I took over Atlanta on July 2nd, 2020. So that was a couple months after the pandemic struck, Mm. um, world altering events, you know, um, everything shut down, 
my deployment was extended by a month because the DOD had a stop move in place. And so when I was supposed to go back, get back in mid-April to begin my PCS, I got back in mid-May, the day my daughter, my second daughter was born. And, uh, and so I just kind of got whisked away to recruiting duty. And it, the, the environment had completely changed. It had gone to a largely virtual environment because schools were closed. Businesses were, were online. Uh, nobody was really doing anything out in the real world, uh, mm -hmm. per se, when it came to recruiting. And so we had, we had these things like zoom and Adobe connect and all this, all this technology that Marines were expected to, you know, set appointments and have interviews and, you know, gain commitments from people. Uh, it was completely new to all of Marine Corps recruiting command. Um, and the adaptation to it was, was slow. And I think in a way, three years later, we're still, we're still trying to adapt to what, you know, swiftly became a, uh, a new normal. Mm -hmm. And with that adaptation comes a hell of a lot of stress. Um, and the greatest lesson that I've learned so far uh, on recruiting duty is that this, the stress is inherent. You know, my billet description out here is not more complex than that of a, you know, a, a, a rifle company commander or a platoon commander or something like that. But the stress that is carried with it is so much greater on a day-to-day -day basis because recruiting duty is a win or lose enterprise. There is nothing more tangible in the Marine Corps from a mission perspective than recruiting duty. There's, there's not the infantry, the drill field, MSG, you know, anywhere else in the supporting establishment, it is not as tangible and results driven as trying to sell the Marine Corps and write contracts and ship men and women to boot camp. And the example that I always try to give is you can watch a platoon run range 410 on 29 Palms, and you're one of 10 people that watch that platoon run that range. You will have one of 10 different opinions on how that platoon did, likely ranging from the platoon commander is the greatest thing since sliced bread to the platoon commander was way out of position. I would have done it differently. They suck. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the end of the day, they got actions on the objective. It may have looked ugly, but they did it. They killed the enemy and they sustained few to zero casualties. Did it differently than some other people would have done it. Got it. Out on recruiting duty, you either win, i.e. you make mission, or you lose. You fail. You don't make mission. There's no, there's no hey, we did all right this month. No, we either fucking crushed it or we failed miserably. And the stress that that causes on a day-to-day -day basis from the canvassing recruiter up through the commanding officer is so incredibly great that you are forced, in order to succeed, you are forced to have a, a, a stoic mindset. Hmm. You have got to understand stoicism. You have got to understand that there are things in my control and there are things out of my control. And if I try to focus on both of them, stress is going to be through the roof. Failure is going to be inherent. Um, so I've read a lot of Stockdale, Admiral James Stockdale, uh, out on this duty. Um, he was a fighter pilot in Vietnam, shot down over uh, North Vietnam, and ended up spending... I believe seven years in the Hanoi Hilton, same one that uh, Senator McCain hmm. um, 
was in for a few years as well. And as his, as his, as he was going down into the jungles of North Vietnam on his parachute, he said to himself, I am leaving the world of technology and I'm entering the world of Epictetus. Epictetus was a, was mm-hmm. a slave uh, back in ancient Roman times. And, you know, he was somebody who, who channeled uh, stoicism significantly as well. And Epictetus's quote is, it's not what happens to you, but how you react mm-hmm. that, that matters. And that is something that Stockdale took with him for seven years in the Hanoi Hilton. Um, that's something that a guy named Victor Frankl uh, took with him when he was in a concentration camp uh, during World War II. And he's got a, he's got a quote, uh, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. That's right. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. And so what I've tried to tell Marines out here that come that come, you know, and, and are new to recruiting duty, look, there's there's ninety-five percent of the stuff that you're gonna encounter on this duty is out of your control. Forget about it. Listen, the kid's gonna say no or yes. If the kid says no, you can't control that. But what you can control is how you respond to it. What you can control is how you grow from that negative experience. And the more and more opportunities you have to grow from those negative experiences, the more and more opportunities you're going to have to have positive experiences in the future. But if you dwell on that no, or if you dwell on the fact that you didn't have a good day, or the RI yelled at you or whatever, then you're not going to succeed. You're only going to succeed if you focus on exactly that, which you are able to control. Hmm. And I can guarantee that you're going to have enough to do during the day if you focus only on that. Um, so no, like cool stories or anything like that. But the, just the experience in general has has kind of forced me into more of a stoic mindset. If 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 only to you know maintain my own sanity and mental health out yeah. here. Yeah. No. Check. Check. I think um, it's so funny that you bring that up. I. I love stoicism. I follow Ryan Holiday and and uh, oh, yeah. you know Marcus Aurelius, all of them. Um, but I, for my book for Lines of Marja, I quoted Epictetus in the beginning, um, and we can go over that another time. But this is just interesting that you that you brought that up. I'm 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 way way into um, the the nature of stoicism, and I think that it's important, especially. Yeah. In the warfighter community, uh, especially, especially in the warfighting community, so that's super cool. Um, I, I think, think that any 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 professional, any person can benefit from uh, from a stoic mindset, or at least reading the Stoics. And uh, just a funny funny kind of story, I guess. Uh, my old opso in RS Atlanta, we were talking about you know numbers and mission and whatnot, and uh, I got frustrated at something and I snapped at somebody, uh, during a meeting. And, uh, my officer looked at me and said, sir, I thought you were a stoic. You've got, you've got all those books on your shelf. And I said, I said, brother, I have those books on my shelf because I am the furthest fucking thing from a stoic. (laughs) And I need those things to remind me that I got to focus on that, which I can control and nothing else. Mm. And it takes daily, daily reminders to, uh, to be able to try to maintain that mindset. So if you're not a stoic, 
you should be reading that shit much more than somebody that it comes naturally to. Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent completely concur. You know, you, you and, uh, it's, it's funny talking to you and, and talking to Gordon because you guys, you guys are so on the same frequency because he would say that, uh, and maybe you've, I don't know if you've seen his episode or not, but I think even in his episode, he said that combat and recruiting was the only two places in the Marine Corps where every single day you have to go prove yourself. Yep. He said it was yep. the only two commands that he's been in so far where every single day you had to show up, you had to put out just to make it happen, just to make it work, and, just to survive. And that's not, that's, that, he's referring to combat. He's not referring to being an infantry Marine. He is referring to being in combat. No, combat. On a combat deployment. You have got, you got to show up every day or you're dead. Mm -hmm. You got to show up every day or you are going to fail on recruiting duty. And and, and like I said, that that stresses, it's palpable, man, because Mm -hmm. you, you have to, you got to show up ready to fight every single day. And that lasts for three years. For a, for a young canvassing recruiter, you know, I had a talk with my, with, with an old boss of mine when, you know, we were talking about going out to recruit duty and I love him to death. Uh, he, he's never been on recruit duty. And he's like, well, how hard can it be? You know, you got to write two a month. I was like, sir, you got to look into what goes into getting that two a month. How many thousands of people do you have to have tell you to go pound sand before you find those two? And that, that does something to your psyche, man. Mm. You might've been a cool guy in your previous unit. You might have been a stud in high school, but these 17, 18 year old kids, they'll eat your lunch yeah. if you let them, you know, and that's, yeah, you gotta, you gotta have that mindset. You gotta show up every single day, ready to do work the moment you clock in. And if you want to, you know, if you want to see the family at night, which there ain't a lot of days where you can, where you can do that, then you better give it everything you got before you clock out. And then maybe, maybe you'll get out a few minutes early. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's it's wild and i have a hard time i i, I can't exaggerate it to be yeah. honest with you uh hell of a growth opportunity and it's a growth opportunity for any marine that comes onto this duty but y- you better be ready to work the moment that you show up sorry to hijack that for a minute but no no yeah. good yeah. good not for the faint of heart but definitely uh definitely <laughs> a job we must continue to fill the mission on for sure vital to national security no doubt and mm-hmm. i think marines understand that uh and, and they show up and they they work but they work 100 percent. well where do you go from now where, where where what's next for you so i uh turn it over at the end of may and uh get a little bit of time with the family and then we're heading up to quantico uh actually following in gordon's footsteps again and going to the school of advanced war fighting so I'll be there for, I guess, a year. Yeah. Read a lot of books, you know, try to try to get smarter, try to focus on the family a little bit. And then uh, from there, do some time as a MAGTAF and operational planner, uh, either out in the fleet or, um, you know, with one of the MAR4s uh, or potentially with, uh, you know, somewhere in Quantico or the, the DC area. I, I don't know. That'll... That'll come in due time, but I know I'll be in Quantico at the end of June, and I'll, I'll be ready to attack uh, around that, and I'm really looking forward to it. Sweet. I look forward to watching you go through the school. I know I've, I I can't go through it, so I have to live vicariously through my mentors, <laughs> but uh, 
got some pictures from Bella Wood and and uh, yeah. Devil Dog Fountain and such. So I'll send you um, the same damn one. I want to see yours too. Wait. I want to see yours too. I wish I could have been there for like the briefs and stuff, but we are. Uh, we're making a trip out there. I don't want to say the date. We're we're making a trip out there to record an episode in the future. Um, awesome. And so, looking you, forward, looking forward to doing uh, doing a good one out there. Um, it's been about an hour and a half, man. We've covered a lot of things. Uh, I want to give you a shot right here at the end, just to shout out to active duty uh, Marine Corps officers and enlisted men, both in the infantry and scattered about the other MOSs as they may be. Uh, talk directly to them, uh, give me a, you know, a little kernel of advice for them, uh, in the times that we're in now. Um, success is, success is not going to happen on a daily basis. You're going to have ups, you're going to have downs, but the one constant that is going to exist throughout your career as a Marine officer or as an NCO, staff NCO, whatever it is sustained success is not going to happen if you try to go at it alone. And, you know, that's why we've been pushing mentorship so hard. We've got to normalize it in the Marine Corps. We've got to normalize it across the military. But while we have to normalize it, we cannot force it. We have to enable it. We have to enable it to grow naturally. We have to enable it to grow from a grassroots level. So if you're an NCO, my challenge to you is to go out, find that junior Marine who reminds you of you and mentor them. Be deliberate and be passionate about that mentorship that you provide them. And remember that mentorship does not just have to focus on professional growth. It can focus on personal growth as well. If you are a junior Marine or if you are a junior officer, hell, if you're one of those NCOs I'm talking to right now, go out, find somebody to mentor and find yourself a mentor. Because again, we are all getting pulled forward by someone. We all should be if we are, if we are to achieve sustained success. And I am willing to bet a paycheck that most of our 170 or 80,000 or so Marines that we've got in the active component. And then we'll throw the thousands of Marines from the reserve component in there. I'm willing to bet that most of them either do not have a mentor and or do not have anyone that they mentor. That needs to change in the Marine Corps. That needs to change across the military. So that's my mentorship plug. And the last thing I'll say is for anyone who is serving in a small unit, anyone who is leading a small unit, I want you to go out on Amazon and I want you to purchase Sebastian Younger's book, Tribe. Mm. It will help you build the culture that you want to build and it will help you sustain that culture long after your small unit goes their separate ways, uh, whether they're transitioning out of the Marine Corps, staying in, going, doing other things, Read tribe and understand that your tribe is the group of people that you would share the last of your food with. If you're a fire team leader, that's your fire team. If you're a squad leader, that's your squad. Build your tribe, take care of each other, and don't suffer in silence. 
Awesome. Awesome. All right, guys, that's it. That's the man. Uh, until next time, this is Choices, not Chances. Man, thanks, thanks, Justin. I appreciate you coming on. And, um, man, it's been great. I'm sure, uh, I'm sure I can come up with some more questions uh, as time goes by. Maybe we'll link up again. Yeah, that'd be great. I was, I, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. It was great to reconnect with you. Great to share some stories and let me know, let me know next time. And you know, when we link up in person, I'll buy you a beer. Ah, bet. All right, guys, till next time, this is choices, not chances. Well, that concludes this episode. Thanks for listening to choices, not chances podcast. Please share, like, and subscribe wherever you listen or watch our podcast. You can also follow us on social media at choices, not chances podcast. Thanks, and have a great day. Louisiana Gun Shop, your firearm headquarters, specializing in concealed carry guns, ammo, and training. You can get your Louisiana permit with us. Also, a large selection of AR-15s, or if you are that build-it-yourself type of guy or gal, we have all the parts to build and customize your own AR-15. Glock, Sig, Taurus, Ruger. We have all the brands, both in the store or at louisianagunshop.com. Not too far. You're marking a building. Hit him. Yeah, that's good. That's a good shot. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah.